fortunate to know you. Thank you, Charlie D. Everybody. Thanks, Mark. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to live up to that, and uh, and he's absolutely right. I never know what I'm going to say. I never know what's I don't know today. <clears throat> you know, I kind of have to figure a way to start talking so that I uh, sort of relax a little bit. You know, and um, so it's probably going to start nowhere. You know, past couple of days, I just sit around thinking. You know, not sit around thinking, but constantly on my mind. You know. What am I going to say? You know, what topics should I bring up? What should I, you know, what is important for people to know about me or what do they want to know about me? And, um, and, and if I try to figure it out and plan it and, you know, even write things down or whatever, it will just all come out wrong and, um, it'll just stress me out even more. So. I'm just going to give you a little background of who I am, you know, where I came from and, <clears throat> and see where it goes. You know, I was, uh, um, I'm from a, a small city right outside of Boston. And um, <clears throat> I grew up in a house that was um, just amazing. You know, um, I have, there's 11 of us. I have 10 brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, everybody got along. I mean, we used to argue and stuff like kids do, like brothers and sisters do, but everybody always got along, you know, they, and we still do, uh, those of us that are left. <clears throat> um, but, you know, I, for some reason, I was always obsessed with alcohol. I had uncles and aunts that, that drank a lot, uh, neighbors that drank a lot, um, but there was never really any alcohol in my house. And, when I turned uh, 13, it was the first time I drank to get, you know, a friend of mine stole some whiskey from his father. I have no idea what it was. But the two of us drank it and we, you know, got a little drunk. And, and you know, it was just what kids do. But, you know, a couple of years after that, you know, I remember clearly one day, like um, I was probably 14 or 15 years old. And went down the railroad tracks with this friend of mine because he had stolen a few beers from his dad and hit him in the bushes. Well, there were four beers there. So he drank two and I drank two. And uh, and that was fine, you know. Um, and we walked uh, wherever the heck we went. And probably, I don't know, half an hour later, I got this feeling come over me. You know, this like anxiety and, uh, you know, my, my body was just, you know, it was like something was wrong. And I said, well, this must be what, you know, beginning to get getting drunk is, you know. And I come to find out later uh, when I understood a little more about alcoholism, that that was what people call the phenomenon of craving. It was a horrible feeling. And I was 14 or 15 years old. And that's what alcohol was doing to me. You know, I um, I think I was born with this disease. I just needed to put alcohol in my system to trigger it, you know, and they talk about it being an allergy and, and that makes complete sense to me. And, you know, um, the typical alcoholic, even, you know, at that young of an age, everything started going wrong. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I got a letter from the state of Massachusetts telling me not to apply for a driver's license because I was an improper person to operate a motor vehicle because I had been arrested for something. And, uh, <clears throat> and I was, uh, 
you know, a couple of things happened when I was that young. Again, I was probably a junior in high school. I don't remember what happened. Something I caused a big scene at at my house. I came in drunk and, uh, and, you know, I had a bunch of little brothers and sisters and, and, um, you know, I didn't grow up in alcoholic home, but they did because of me and a couple of my brothers. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, the police were called and, and I, I don't even remember what it was all about, but it was a it was a nightmare. And a couple of days later, it's New Year's Eve and some friends were going to the liquor store to get something. And I gave him some money. And a friend of mine looked at me and he said, after everything that happened the other night, how the hell can you drink? And I just looked at him and said, I really don't know. I just know that I can't. And I really didn't know, you know, I mean, it did confuse me. There was like, um, the, I was this walking contradiction, you know, um, knowing that what I was doing was wrong, yet knowing somehow that it was okay. It was like, okay to do wrong things as long as, you know, especially with alcohol was concerned and things that I gave up on, <clears throat> you know, um, and and it was shortly after that, I think, that I was taken to my first AA meeting uh, at 16 years old. You know, um, it was in the month of March, too. It was, you know, right around this time of year that I was taken to that meeting. And I couldn't tell you anything that was said at that meeting. I was taken there by uh, a guy who was a friend of the next door neighbor. And um, he, they... The only thing that I remember was these people who I considered all old people because, you know, I was 16. They were probably in their 40s and um, they treated me like one of them. You know, they gave me cigarettes. They got me a cup of coffee. Um, They were talking to each other as as if I wasn't even there. You know, just the discussions they were having, the language they were using. and it it was really odd. And that was one of those things that I remembered, one of those things that stuck in my head that Alcoholics Anonymous was nothing to be afraid of. These people were nothing to be afraid of. Uh, you know, um, they just made me feel accepted. They made me feel more comfortable than I did in most places. And, <clears throat> you know, to get back to that, uh, that contradiction, um, so much of my life, I walked around in that in that state of mind that, you know, everything was a contradiction. My mother, you know, devout Catholic, my mother and father, and uh, these people moved in across the street and, you know, had kids about my age. And these three girls became sisters to me. They still are today. And, you know, our families got so close that I used to call their mother Ma, because that's what they called it. And, um, and my mother um, could have been buried in Franciscan robes if she chose to. And Ma lived across the street, was a burlesque stripper. <clears throat> and I loved the both of them. And I knew, you know, it was just like, they couldn't have been more opposite. And I, you know, I think one of the things that happened to me because of that, I just became very accepting of people. I didn't judge people by, by what they did or whether you know, somebody was a stripper or a nun or somebody was, was gay or one of my brothers was gay. And, and I, I mean, I couldn't have cared less. It just didn't mean anything to me. And, you know, I mean, that was back in the 60s. It wasn't like it was it is today. And it, ever since I was a kid, 
uh, you know, I went through nine years of Catholic schools and, and they would say things that, that I questioned and, and it, it wasn't okay to question it, you know, um, you know, some baby can't go to heaven because they weren't baptized. And, you know, I mean, I'm in the second grade and I'm thinking to myself, that's just wrong. You know, what the hell did this baby do wrong? And, <clears throat> And things that, I, you know, that I wanted to ask questions about, but you knew better than to ask questions about any of that stuff. And, and I, you know, I, and I went through, through life like that, like just pretending that, um, you know, that I believed in God, that I, uh, that, <clears throat> you know, so many other things. And, and, you know, through high school, when, uh, in high school, there was this girl that I was really attracted to. And, and again, I was probably a sophomore or junior in high school. And she was uh, one of those girls who did her homework and, um, you know, wasn't drinking or smoking. And I mean, she wasn't a real, you know, goody two shoes or whatever. She was just a regular kid. But uh, <clears throat> I looked at her and I said to myself, you know, there's no way that she's ever going to want anything to do with me. And you know, um, I would be in class and especially in the earlier grades, uh, the nuns gave a test back. They'd give it back by whoever got the highest grade first. And there were like 40 kids in my class. And I would get my test back like fifth or sixth, always in the top 10. And, and therefore, the conclusion that I came to was that I'm stupid. You know, these people are all smarter than me. <clears throat> and I just had this, um, you know, this, this self-esteem that was just constantly going down and, and making me settle in for less. And, you know, and always through all of this time, from the time I, I was in the, the eighth grade, summer of the eighth grade, my drinking was progressing because just because I was getting a little older, it was a little easier to get a hold of things. And, and if I could get a hold of it, I drank it. And if I, there was something there to drink, I drank it all. You know, there wasn't, um, and, and I, and even, you know, I look back on it and even in high school, you know, I went out when I loved blackberry flavored brandy and I got a hold of some blackberry flavored brandy, a half pint of it and a six pack. And I was good. And I would just be completely trashed, which is where I wanted to be. And, and I would have these drastic personality changes and, and I'd be, you know, arguing with people or whatever. And <clears throat> so I said, it's got to be the blackberry flavored brandy. So I'll stop drinking that. And then that really didn't work. So then I said, well, I'll just drink wine. I mean, nobody drank wine back then. None of my friends did. I mean, I bought the cheapest wine you could buy, like the winos were drinking. And um, so e even in high school, I was changing what I was drinking um, because I recognized that there was something wrong. You know, and recognizing that there's something wrong and doing something about it, two completely different things. I had no desire to do anything about it. You know, um, if, if anybody asked me, I remember, you know, somebody saying to me when I was, well, I was, I, got, I had two kids, so I was probably 20 years old. I think my, my son was just an infant. And um, my wife's uncle worked for Coca-Cola. He was a manager in Coca-Cola. And, and um, I know I wasn't 21 years old because he said, 
we got a job for you. You have to go to work in the warehouse until you turn 21, which wasn't going to be that long. He said, and then we'll get you a truck driver's license and get you on a delivery route. And you got great health benefits. It was a good paying job. You got retirement from that and everything. And and I turned him down and, and I told him, you know, that uh, I don't want to embarrass you. I know that, you know, if I take a job like that, I'll screw it up. And um, and he said to me, you know, he said, you're not going to find any answers at the bottom of a beer bottle. And, and I just looked at him like he was nuts. Like who was looking for answers at the bottom of a beer bottle? You know, if I was at the bottom of a beer bottle, I was just looking for another beer bottle. <clears throat> you know, um, I, I didn't drink for any reason other than the fact that that I like to drink and I was willing to sacrifice things uh, because um, I just wanted to drink. And I, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know why something at a meeting prompted it. And they were talking about trust and um, and self-esteem. And and I believe today that that's where a lot of that low self-esteem that I had came from is that I didn't trust anything, you know, um, because everything in my head was a contradiction. You know, I was supposed to trust God if I did good. You know, I didn't break any of their rules. I was going to go to heaven. Well, I knew that wasn't going to happen, you know, um, and, and, and the low self-esteem, you know, um, one of the things I like being at a meeting like this is, is that I feel like I can't say anything I want. You know, I, I'm in the, uh, I don't know, seventh or eighth grade, and we all had to go to church. And, uh, um, you know, they took attendance on Sunday morning. So all of us were there, and there was this um, seventh grade girl that's there that that I, she was just gorgeous. You know, she ended up becoming a good friend of mine, but really good looking girl. Now, I'm looking at this girl, and I get a heart on in church, and I'm thinking, I'm going to hell. What is wrong with me? There's got to be something wrong with me that this can happen to me in church. And at the same time, thinking of how crazy that was. I was just a normal adolescent going through life. Just it was completely normal. And yet so many things that were normal events in life somehow manipulated by either what I was to people were telling me or the way that I internalized it, that I was, uh, I was wrong. There was something wrong with me. I was less than, you know, and, and things like that haunted me through my life, you know, that no matter what, uh, I would always fail. And when you get into that frame of mind that you, um, you know, you're going to fail after a while, it's like, why bother? You know, I'm not going to try anything. And, um, you know, at 20 years old, I had two kids. Um, I was a raging alcoholic. And, you know, I mean, I could come up with stories about what I did and, you know, and all kinds of crap. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, nothing really had any effect on me. You know, I wanted to be a good father and a good husband. You know, I knew what that looked like. I watched my dad. Um, but I also knew that that wasn't going to happen. I was going to fail at that. And I knew that a lot of that had to do with drinking. And I also never, it never occurred to me that um, 
that I was going to be capable of not drinking, nor did I have the desire to stop drinking. And I really didn't understand that, you know, knowing that my life is all screwed up because I drink the way I drink. But yet it was never an option for me to, to stop drinking. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, some of that I, I don't I don't have. Um, I don't have an explanation for it. I, uh, <clears throat> you know, um, you know, I had I had a thing that that I wrote down the other day. Somebody was talking about that and and um, saying that you know she chose to drink. And I used to tell people that all the time. I drink because I like to drink. You know, I don't have a problem with that. If you have a problem with the way I drink, then you have a problem, not me. And and this girl was talking about how you know sad it is that we choose to do something that is destroying us. I knew it was destroying me. Yet I choose to do it anyway. And, and, you know, I I feel fortunate that, that I was able to get out of that, you know? Um, Anyway, when I turned uh, 29 years old, I guess I was, I, things changed. um, Because before that, even though, you know, that I had, I knew what that phenomenon of craving was, that if I put alcohol in my system, I had to drink. But if I stopped drinking, if I didn't drink, you know, for a week, it, it was, you know, it was because I couldn't find something to drink. It wasn't anything, um, you know, horrific. And then at 29 years old, I was starting to come to the conclusion that I didn't want to live like this anymore. And I decided I wasn't going to drink. And at times before this, a period for 30 days, once for 90 days, I think I didn't drink. I never went for any kind of help or anything. I just didn't drink. And uh, and it was hard, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And this time, uh, if I didn't drink, I would start shaking. And I'd, I'd wake up in the morning and uh, and things were different. I... Uh, I, I got up one morning, Saturday morning in the house. Nobody was home. I walked over to the refrigerator and um, took out a can of beer and I walked over to the sink. I opened the can of beer and it dawned on me why I was standing over the sink because it was a 50-50 shot that this was going to stay down or it was, it's going to come right back up. And I knew that as soon as I could get like a half a beer to stay down, I was good. Uh, <clears throat> About and and I would get suicidal. I would get drunk, and um, you know I worked in the auto body business, so um, I I fixed wrecked cars. That that was my job. So I knew how to wreck a car, and and I knew exactly how to crash a car so that the chances of me surviving it were pretty slim. And I liked to drive really fast. And I would wake up the next morning realizing that you know I had these serious thoughts last night when I was drunk about taking myself out and it scared me. So I decided I wasn't gonna drink and I, I got drunk and um, and told my wife and you know these other friends of ours that were there um, that, that I wasn't gonna drink. I was gonna go call this place, local hospital for help and uh, I wasn't gonna drink anymore. Well, I wake up in the morning and realize what I did or what I said and realize really at that point there was no way out of it. And there was a part of me that really didn't want to drink anymore. And I detoxed at home. 
I went through full-blown DTs. I thought I was going to die. I was hallucinating. Uh, every bone in my body hurt. Um, it was just awful. And I went to that counselor and she put me on ant abuse. I took ant abuse for a year. Um, if anybody doesn't know what that is, if you take ant abuse and you drink, you get violently ill, you're going to end up in the emergency room. So it's just like a deterrent to not drink. <clears throat> um, and I, I used to go to these meetings. They weren't AA meetings. They were like group therapy meetings. And once in a while, I'd go to an AA meeting and I just didn't like those AA people and they had too many rules and, and you know, all, all, and that's just a cult and, uh, you know, all of the things that people come up with, the excuses that people come up with. And, and um, <clears throat> for three and a half years, I didn't have a drink. Um, but probably after like three or four months, I started smoking pot on the weekends. And then I started smoking pot every night. And then I started smoking hash. And then I started doing lines of Coke. And then finally, I just had, you know, I don't remember what the circumstances were. I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to drink. So I went and bought a um, six pack of Budweiser cans and I drank one. It was okay. I got about halfway through the second one and, and I was getting paranoid and I couldn't find anybody that I knew that would be happy that I was drinking. And, um, <clears throat> and the beer tasted horrible. And I said, you know what? It must be, these cans must be stumped. They must be no good. So I went back to the liquor store and I bought a six pack of bottles and I opened a bottle. <laughs> Almost the same thing happened with the bottle. You know, so I look at that. That was the, the last time I had any alcohol, but it was, I tried to drink. I knew it wasn't going to work. That was the problem. You know, I, I at least been away from alcohol long enough that, um, that I knew it wasn't going to work. Um, I, I did not want to go back to that life. And, um, you know, uh, uh, several things happened. It, it, uh, I, I went to a meeting and, and I'm thinking I'm, you know, on my way to the meeting. What the hell am I going to AA for? You know, I haven't had a drink in three and a half years. I can't be an alcoholic. How easily I forget I went through the DTs coming off of alcohol. I'm not a drug addict because the only reason I do drugs is so that I won't drink. And those things kind of made sense to me. And then, uh, you know, but I went to that meeting anyway, and I ran into somebody, I ran into a friend of mine's dad, and he was sober about four years at the time. And, uh, and he just took me around, you know, I just did whatever Frank told me to do. Um, literally, you know, Frank had me signed up for a thing called an AWOL. He had me signed up for a men's retreat. We signed up for a couple's retreat. He had my kids going to Al-Anon, my wife going to, I mean, my kids going to Alateen, my wife going to Al-Anon. Uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the things he told me to do was to get on my knees every morning and ask God to help me stay away from a drink. And I did that because Frank told me to do it. Um, and uh, after doing that for a few months, uh, I was coming down the stairs in the morning after going through this routine and thinking to myself, this is just bullshit. You know, I know I'm not going to drink today. And, and that one of those light bulb moments, you know, that went off in my head that I knew I wasn't going to drink, 
because I was doing all of, a lot of these things that I was told to do that people in Alcoholics Anonymous were doing. They were staying sober. And, uh, and if I did those things, then maybe I could stay sober too. I didn't believe in that God. I was asking for help. And I look back on it today. And I don't think it made any difference whatsoever if I believed in God or a fucking light bulb or what it was. The point was that I was asking for help to stay sober. <clears throat> I could not do it on my own. No matter how many times I had tried it on my own, it was just never, ever going to work. And this time I was asking for help and I was following directions. I was doing what people told me to do. And, you know, uh, when you do that, you know, the, there's a dramatic change in your life, you know. Um, people, you know, it says that in the big book. Rarely have we seen a person fail. It's thoroughly, thoroughly followed our path. Well, people who follow those things and go along with that, they typically can stay sober. You know, I did. There were seven people that I grew up with, one of them my brother, um, that uh, within two years, there were seven of us that got sober together. And, you know, life changed. Um, I was two years sober and I took a job, uh, you know, teaching auto body repair in a high school. I went back to school at night uh, because I got a pay raise for every 15 credits you got in school. And then I built up enough credits that it was close getting a bachelor's degree and I said geez if I get a bachelor's degree I get a real big raise so I got a bachelor's degree um, <clears throat> and then one of my sisters talked me into staying in school and going to get a master's degree um, so I got a master's degree and you know uh, to make a long story short I didn't stay in that auto body teaching department I ended up as the assistant principal in that high school and my last year in high school they they made me go to summer school to make up some credits. They handed me a diploma in September. I was never part of a graduating class or anything. They said, hey, get out of here. Don't come back and visit. Here's your diploma. Have a nice life. And I end up as an assistant principal in a high school. You know, um, all because I got sober. And, you know, through most of that time in sobriety, um, I pretended. You know, that, um, you know, God helped me get that diploma. God got me that job. You know, um, that's the stuff people around me were saying. And, and, and I never bought it, you know, and I, and again, it was like being that kid in grammar school. It wasn't okay to challenge those beliefs. And that's my fault. That's not the fault of Alcoholics Anonymous or anybody else. You know, <clears throat> we each, all of us have to find our own path to sobriety. You know, um, that path um, in, in my career of going to, you know, teaching in that school, it was, um, you know, kind of the same thing that's happened to me in sobriety. You know, I really enjoyed teaching in the shop. It was fun. Um, I was in a classroom for five years teaching you know, the science and the math and they connected to the auto body business and, you know, how to run a business, how to mix paints and what the chemicals were, you know, and, and it was kind of fun. Um, and then I worked in like special ed for a little while. And <clears throat> but there was always something missing, you know, as much as I enjoyed it, as much as I liked my career, I always felt like something was missing. 
And then when they moved me into the office, and I, I wasn't the assistant principal yet, but they needed somebody in there to help out. And I was kind of the assistant principal, the guidance counselor, the special ed person, um, because there wasn't anybody else there. And so I got to work with these kids. And um, and and it was like, this is where I want to be. This is This is it. I finally got to where something was real for me. It was what I wanted. And, um, <clears throat> you know, there was a lot, you know, it's any high school. I'm six miles from downtown Boston. There were a lot of drugs and drinking and, and, and everything else. And, you know, from by the parents and the kids, you know, um, and, and the staff, some of them, you know, a couple of them got sober. I had parents that they, that, you know, went to meetings with. Um, you know, and it was just a great life. But um, as far as my sobriety and being um, where I want to be in in life in general, you know, um, people looked at, uh, you know, I, I get, sometimes I get confused and uh, how to say things. And it's like I, I know exactly what I want to say or uh, you know, of what it means to me, but I don't always know how to get that point across. <clears throat> that, you know, that whole idea of trust and self, low self-esteem or the lack of trust and low self-esteem um, came from every direction in my life, including Alcoholics Anonymous. I would hear people say, faith is a lack of, fear is a lack of faith. And I would, you know, 10 years sober and still dealing with all kinds of fear, you know, just afraid of, um, you know, being in the, in the spotlight or afraid of making a mistake or whatever. But there was all kinds of fear, most of which I think was normal. But if that's a lack of faith, then I must be doing something wrong, you know. And so, again, that whole idea of trusting anything and um, <clears throat> was really difficult to do. So, therefore, it had to be my fault. And that low self-esteem was always there. You know, it still is something that I battle today sometimes um, because it was never really okay to be me. You know, it was okay. I, I heard, you know, and it's one of the things that uh, about speaking that one of the things I don't like, one of the things I do like, I guess, um, I, I don't, this isn't like my favorite thing to do, partly because I do get kind of confused or whatever. And, and I, and I always remind myself that everything I have to say, you know, that I say at this meeting does not have to be some kind of profound theory or, or, or you know, enlightenment for somebody. Sometimes it's just one word or one phrase. You know, there was a, a guy that, that spoke at a meeting and, and I, I don't know how, I was 15, 20 years old. And, um, <clears throat> and he was just a great speaker, great to listen to. And um, I only remember one thing that he said. And, and it was just the point that he was trying to make was that all his life, he was always told what his values, what his morals were, and how he didn't live up to them. Whether that was the rules in his house, whether that was the Ten Commandments, uh, whether that was what his boss expected him to do. He was always trying to live up to somebody else's expectations, somebody else's code of ethics was the word he used. 
And, you know, and I thought about that and I said, you know what? It's time for me to recognize what my code of ethics are. What do I believe is right and wrong? You know, um, because I don't believe in the same God that my mother does, doesn't make me wrong, doesn't make her wrong. You know, I have to come up with what I believe is right. I think I'm a kind, decent human being. You know, I try to be. And, um, and, and that's where that comes from. And, you know, and that is a combination of all of those things, all of those rules and, and, and whatever lessons that I would taught, you know, um, and a lot of them I just had to throw out. Um, some of them I didn't, some of them I hold on to. Like, I don't lie. I try really, really hard to not lie about anything, absolutely nothing. Sometimes I'll be working on something out here in my garage and I'll go in and tell my wife that I made a mistake building this thing. And she says, why are you always ratting yourself out? Uh, <clears throat> you know, and, and I have come to the conclusion, really, it's not because I'm a saint. Anytime that I lie, I'm subtracting something from my life. I'm taking a little bit of my own self-esteem and trashing it. So I'm harming myself every single time I tell any kind of a lie. And I think it's almost impossible to get through life being 100% truthful 100% of the time. But the more that I recognize that, the more that I pay attention to that, you know, the less um, things are subtracted from my life. You know, I, I live this incredible life today. And I think that's what it comes from. It comes from, you know, telling the truth. It comes from honestly trying to help somebody. It comes from, you know, being that little kid I was in the second grade that really, really felt bad for this this baby or even some adult who committed a mortal sin that wasn't going to heaven. You know, um, I wanted to help those people. I didn't want those people to suffer. I didn't want anybody to suffer. You know, and, and I was able to treat these kids in high school like the people at that first AA meeting treated me when I was 16 years old. I talked to those kids in their own language. Sometimes some adults, some of the people I worked for would look at me like I was crazy. Um, I would get criticized for it, but I talked to those kids on their own level. You know, one of those kids, um, I uh, was celebrating an AA anniversary and she was three years sober at the time. And I asked her if she would speak at the meeting. And, um, and her comment was probably the best comment, uh, compliment that I have ever gotten in my life. And she said that he didn't treat us like we were kids. He treated us like we were his kids. And I think if we all treated each other like, you know, uh, like you were my child or my wife or my daughter or, 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 or um, you know, whatever. But we don't, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world that doesn't treat people like that. And, and, you know, as far as this whole religious thing and everything, one of the, um, one of the phases that I kind of went through, and, and I still, in some instances, might even take claim to being a Christian atheist. And, you know, people will look at you like, you know, how the hell could you be a Christian atheist? That's a contradiction. And, um, and I think, you know, Jesus Christ, if he did ever really live and walk this earth, did have a lot of good things to say. I just don't believe that he was God, whether there even is a God. 
you know, so I, I can believe in somebody's principles, somebody's values without having to buy the whole thing, you know, and, and I think people are like books, you know, I mean, I read a lot and, and if I read a book and, and I'm getting into a book and I really like this book and then I get to like chapter five and it's like awful. Well, I'm not going to throw the book away just because it's got one bad chapter. Why do we do that to people? You know, we frequently do that to people. People screw up. And, um, you know, I, I was involved in a thing called an AWOL. I, I don't think they do that in Europe, but I know they do in Canada or in the United States. But it's any, it's like an intensive um, step program, step meeting. And it's just this group of people. And, and they have these rules, which uh, my friend and I, who ran this thing for a while, eliminated all these rules. You had to be sober for a certain amount of time. If you drank, they kicked you out of the meeting. If you didn't have uh, your attendance wasn't such, they'd kick you out of the meeting. I mean, it was just crazy. We didn't do any of that stuff because the both of us would sit there and tell people we don't shoot our wounded, you know, and how often do we shoot our wounded? You know, um, I was talking about 1979 when I became kind of suicidal and um, and decided that I wanted to try to stop drinking and, you know, and did some drugs and, you know, eventually drank three and a half years later. Um, so I have a sobriety date that is 1983. <clears throat> I believe my recovery started in 1979. I don't give a shit how anybody else counts stuff. What they tell you uh, qualifies you as being sober or not being sober. The only thing that matters to me is when my recovery started um, and how it keeps going. How am I going to keep that going? You know, the fact that I've been sober for a long time doesn't mean shit. I heard a guy say that one time. It was one of my, another one of my favorite things that I ever heard at a meeting. And he was celebrating a whole bunch of years. And at the end of it, he said, um, although some of us are further down the road of recovery than others, we are all the same distance from the ditch. And, you know, I, it doesn't matter if I pick up a drink today, I'm, my life's done. It's gone. You know, I have an incredible life today. And as long as I remember that stuff, you know, um, I, I live on a retired teacher's salary and I live on the ocean in Maine. Uh, we're going to France to look around to see if there's a possibility. Maybe we can buy a, an old house that needs to be repaired or whatever. Um, so that I can spend half the time living here in the United States and half the time living in Europe. And, um, and, and I've figured out how to do stuff like that on just a, you know, a normal, I am not rich by any means at all, <clears throat> but I've made right decisions. You know, um, the only, I have three car payments left and I'll own my car. So the only other debt that I have is the mortgage on my house. You know, I, I am not, accumulating debt because I don't feel good when I do that. Um, you know, it restricts me. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I try to think of, um, you know, things, messages that, uh, that I think are important to people and, you know, um, and I've, I've made a lot of mistakes on the way and, and I, and I hope that, um, you know, that people, um, <clears throat> will learn from my mistakes rather than making their own. You know, um, 
and and I can be intolerant like a lot of people. You know, I hear people, you know, say at a meeting, you know, I'm so-and-so, this is my sobriety date. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. I really don't give a shit, you know, if your sponsor has a sponsor. You know, <clears throat> I don't have a sponsor. You know, <clears throat> I'm still sober. You know, I think that whole idea of a sponsor can get um, blown out of proportion anyway. You know, um, that guy, Frank, helped me out a lot, steered me in the right direction. I had to get away from him because it, it just wasn't healthy for me to be around him anymore. And then I did have a sponsor who was, uh, you know, became my sponsor because, again, I felt like I had that's what I had to do. Billy was my best friend. Billy was. uh you know, it was just one of those people that I, you know, you meet certain people and you just click with them. You know, Mark, I, I, I see Mark on a TV screen for whatever. Something just clicks with that guy. And I know that if we were at meetings together, we'd be hanging out together, you know, and, and I pay attention to stuff that like that now before I wouldn't trust things like that. I wouldn't admit things like that. You know, I mean, I am, uh, I try real hard to be true to who I am and true to what I think this program of sobriety, um, whether it's a secular meeting or it's not a secular meeting, to be truthful, to be okay with who I am. I don't have to point out where I think you're wrong or that I disagree with you, but I am surely not going to sit there and pretend that I do. You know, it's okay to be me. It's okay to have different opinion. It's okay to have uh, uh, <clears throat> doubts about things and, and insecurities and fear. You know, people talk about fear in some of those meetings, like um, like it's uh, like it's an evil. You know, you did something wrong if you're fearful. And you know, I jumped out of an airplane one time. I I, I had never been in an airplane before in my life. Somebody was going skydiving and. And said, why don't you come? I said, okay. So I went, got in the airplane and jumped out, out of that airplane. I was scared shitless. Even the guy, the instructor said he never seen anybody's body shake that bad. I'm afraid of heights. You know, what am I doing? Something like that. I had a lot of faith in that instructor. I had a lot of faith in that, uh, that parachute. And to me, that's what faith is about. It's, it's, um, you know, believing making a decision to believe in something that I'm afraid of. You know, um, one of the uh, and I, uh, story that I read in Grapevine was do it afraid. That was the name of it. You know, if you're afraid of something, don't wait until the fear goes away to do it. Just do it afraid. You know, it's okay to be afraid. And it's, the more it's okay to be afraid, the less that I'm afraid. <clears throat> um there was something else I was going to say there, and I lost. Oh, the root cause of the problem, you know, that fear. You know, people will tell you these, um, you know, some people in traditional AA will tell you that the root cause of, of fear is, is a lack of faith in God. And, and, you know, to me, that's complete bullshit to them. If that's the way it is, good. But, you know, how often do we um, not look at the root cause of the problem? When I first got sober, obviously alcohol was the problem. And, and to me, at, at, as, you know, um, the limit of my capabilities at the time was to recognize that that was the root cause of the problem. 
Well, once I eliminated the alcohol, then I realized that that really wasn't the root cause of the problem, that the root cause of the problem was in me. And I had to address that and I had to find that and figure out what that was. And a lot of that was stuff that I was talking about, that low self-esteem and trying to live up to other people's values and things like that. And I think if, you know, if this crazy world that we lived in ever looked at things like the root cause of the problem, you know, they talk about this big problem of um, all these immigrants coming into the United States. Well, if they looked at the root cause of the problem, then maybe they would figure out how to maybe put a limit on that because they're causing the goddamn problem to begin with. Um, You know, I uh, I don't know how long I've been talking, but I think it's probably about time for me to shut up. But what you know, uh, I I just want to end it with this, and, and I think it's um, it's really what I, what I try to make sure that everybody um, who I have any kind of um, you know meaningful discussion with about anything understands about me that one of the most important things that I ever learned in my life. And it is absolutely critical for me to get through a day with anything is maybe I'm wrong. If I don't believe that there's the possibility that I'm wrong, I can't learn anything. I already know it all. But if there's a possibility that I'm wrong, then I can learn something. And, and I, um, you know, when I listen to other people and, and they, they, they talk, I do the exact opposite. And I'll say, you know what, I don't agree with that, but maybe they're right. Maybe I need to look at the other side of something. And if I can look at the other side of something, like, like, um, I mean, how the hell do I know whether or not I, <clears throat> I want to live in, um, in France or I want to live in the United States? The only way I'm going to know that is to explore those two things, to go there, experience it. And if I experience that thing, and, and, and it's not good for me, then I'm not going to do that, you know? And, and that's what I had to do with this whole uh, philosophy of AA, find meetings that, um, that worked for me. I wasn't going to criticize secular meetings unless I went there. I shouldn't criticize regular AA meetings unless I go there. You know, I shouldn't do it blindly because there's the possibility that I'm wrong. And I hope I didn't bore you to death. Thanks for calling me, Mom.